While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. thing to open this show with andrew i think just i think just say welcome to overdue you think i should just start the show uh, yeah i shouldn't belabor the opening well it's very it's a very again we need to figure out how to use that word <laughs> maybe belabor? that's what we should talk I about think yeah i'm using it correctly i think that's correct okay lauren knows she teaches writing like she teaches people to use words like belabor you're looking it up you don't believe us hey siri Tell me about Lauren. Okay, back argue, me up. Actually, we're belaboring right now by arguing or elaborating in excessive detail. So, so that is what it means. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And joining us this week is I'm Lauren Spore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I threw the ball at you, Lauren. And I didn't tell you. I'm uh, um, I'm Lauren. Hello, Lauren. <laughs> I'm feeling uh, extra self-conscious because just like five minutes ago, we got our first criticism on Twitter about me having vocal fry, which, what? I, which you know, is is fine, but you know, it makes you feel a little self-conscious about how you talk. Oh, that's that's unfortunate. Where, yeah. where did this person come from with this Some criticism? Person on Twitter, and I I feel kind of proud of myself that I just like read it and then moved on, and I. Took, <laughs> Decline to reply. I wanted to say thank you very much. Hope you enjoy your <laughs> hope you enjoy your free podcast that took me thirty hours to make. Really, it seems like you should you should feel good for having made it this far in podcasting without having been criticized for vocal fry before now. Because that's, apparently that's apparently that's all people do is sit around and listen for instances of vocal fry yeah. and yell about it. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard for me to understand that it could be so unbearable for for another person. <laughs> it makes me think they they've never met a woman in real life who talks like this in real life. Or just <laughs> or just anyone who is like under 30. Under 30? <laughs> I was going to say like in here in Philly there are several actors and and theater professionals that I work with who are very attuned to how language gets used. So I even just noticed myself right now using some up talk. Yeah. And that's a thing that, <laughs> that you know, some people are critical of and others are just, you should be aware of it. That's all. Like if you're aware of it and you know that, you know, what your voice is doing, that's fine because then you can suit it to the right purpose. But you don't need to be jumping on people for their voice. And if you're having a good time and talking about something that you care about, I don't think that you need to be concerned about how, the way that your voice sounds. Yeah, unless you're giving like a boardroom presentation or something like that. You maybe, know? maybe. <laughs> uh, so Lauren, <laughs> where, which podcast do you make that you do labor, not belabor, 30 hours 
Oh, on I, for free episodes. I am the co-creator of a podcast called Criminal. So uh, I work with a woman named Phoebe Judge. She's the host. And so I'm usually not even on the air, which is fine by me. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm a longtime public radio producer. And, and, and she's, been, she's been a reporter. So we've both been doing this type of work for a long time. But now we get to do it sort of on our own terms. And it's been, it's been so much fun. And really, we're really happy. And it's a, it's a podcast about crime, but not just criminals, right? Right, right. So it's true crime. The way I explain it to someone who I don't think has ever heard of maybe a podcast is what I'll say is mm-hmm. it's true crime audio documentaries. And they're about 20 minutes. And we talk to people who've broken the law. And sometimes we talk to people who've uh, been the victims of a crime. And sometimes we talk to people who've just been, who've had sort of something strange and criminal happen in the periphery of their life that's impacted them in some way. Now, Andrew, I turned you onto the show a couple weeks ago after the, after the book thief episode. Is that right? Yeah, it was a couple months ago. It was the book thief episode got me. And then, um, one of the other ones, you guys did a live show about, um, about a woman who oh, yeah. helps with like end of life planning. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something that I have like a lot of feelings about. And <laughs> yeah. And the the show is all about how she gets right up to the edge of breaking the law without doing it. Yeah, because she just she just sits <laughs> yeah. at your bedside. Um and she doesn't touch you and she doesn't provide anything to you. So she she says that she's a compassionate presence um during someone's choice to end their life. Um, yeah, so she's a super fascinating person, uh, and she lives here. We live in Durham, and she lives in Chapel Hill, so it's the next town over. So we were really she she agreed to sort of come and, and be interviewed live on stage at a show we did here, and it was just it was I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. I remember saying to my mom, my mom saying, "I'm not going to want to listen to that one," and I was like, "I think you're I think you should try. Like it's not what yeah. you think. It's really not what you think," and and that's. I've been happy that that's been that's sort of like what we're going for with a lot of these with a lot of the episodes is like you're not going to know where it's going and and they're not going to be violent or sensational um but they're going to be interesting and that's what I think that's what keeps us going. Yeah. So we reached out to you because uh you know turned Andrew on the show and we were both super excited and the idea of someone who covers crime and covers criminals and tries to get to the bottom of their stories reading and responding to a mystery that they didn't know of before sounded like a really interesting idea. So how is, what is your relationship to reading? What books do you read often? And and how does even being a writer affect how you read books and, and mysteries in particular even? I think that I, um, well, I went, I started right after college, I got an internship in public radio and I worked in public radio for some years. And then I, I left and I was like, I need to be writing fiction. I need to be an artist. And so I left <laughs> and went to, um, I went and got my MFA in fiction writing, which was a total dream. And I was older than most of my classmates, but really all I had to do was, um, was read all the time. Yeah. And I had amazing teachers and I read some of the craziest stuff, but it was, it was really, it was stuff that was more interested in maybe form than in plot. So it was it was kind of heavy. It was really delightful in a lot of ways. But it was around that same time that I started reading crime novels. And I think it was like a, a pretty helpful antidote for me was to read something that was almost entirely plot. Um, yeah. And so I, I feel good. I mean, even though I'm done with grad school, I've sort of maintained that mix of reading sort of out there literary fiction and then reading reading a lot of crime novels. So what did you choose for us this week? 
we we asked you to kind of come up with some stuff that might have been on your to be read list and uh, we've we narrowed down on something yeah so the book that we picked is called the daughter of time and it's by i'm saying her name as josephine tay is that how you're saying sure <laughs> that's, that's how I'm gonna that's say how it i've said it yeah okay that's what i'm saying um and i wanted to read this book because i've seen it mentioned on a ton of lists of like the best crime novels the best mystery novels um and i had never read it and i also like aside from reading those lists and i don't know why i was reading those lists um i had not heard that much about it in conversation you know like people love to talk about raymond chandler or dashiell hammett um, or Agatha Christie, Patricia Highsmith, but I hadn't heard a lot about Josephine Tay, and so I, it felt like something that was overdue. Yeah, it's certainly not an author I'd ever heard of, and, and that's kind of been fun for us on the show, Andrew. I know you and I have account- yeah, right. encountered these a bunch of times where it's, I didn't even know that this book existed, let alone was at the top of some list somewhere. Yeah, jo- Josephine Tay is the um, the pseudonym for Elizabeth McIntosh, and um and from what I've read, she seems like the mystery novelist's mystery novelist. <laughs> like, like once you're in that circle, you know who she is, but maybe you haven't heard a lot about her. Yeah, I, like if you, if you're I definitely not hadn't. In that, I guess. And then I was looking at this website earlier today that just said like Josephine Tay. I think it said like Josephine Tay, like a very private person. That was like, that's that's the subtitle of her website. Yeah. Is a very private woman. <laughs> a very private woman. Yeah. So it is seems it, like that's part of it too. Is that people don't know very much about who she was. Yeah. Exactly. She kind of. It, it's funny that one of the primary sources for her is John Gilgood. Like we, his journals and letters are a major source of anything we know about this woman yeah but we do know she was like a PE teacher or some kind of teacher right uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah and did you did you either of you find that thing where she was teaching you know she's educated in Inverness um at a physical training college so she apparently used something like that as a setting for a nov for a mystery novel in 1946 called Miss Pym Disposes I imagine Miss Pym went around disposing people because there was some, <laughs> there was an, there was an accident when she was teaching at another school where like a boom or something in the auditorium, in like the gymnasium fell on her. And this is uh, Tay and injured her. And apparently that's how someone gets offed in Miss Pym disposes. Wow. She's pretty rough. Um, but she'd been writing all her life, I think, like kind of started getting published in the twenties short stories and poems and she had another pseudonym called gordon was it davit davio date i don't know davio davio yeah d-a-v-i-o-t so i thought it was produce your own pronunciation for that name i guess (laughs) the thing that blew me away about having two pseudonyms one was a man and one was a woman that i read somewhere that apparently this character alan grant crosses over so he appears in one novel with the pseudonym gordon davio and one with josephine tay and i just wonder what it would be like to be a contemporary reader and think like okay so some one author just ripped off this other author and just picked up this character and wrote her own novel i thought that was fascinating yeah it's like the alan grant verse like who exists who's in the snow globe with alan grant yeah can you just take someone else's character (laughs) Well, I assume it's like they they were going for something like the Marvel Comics movies where <laughs> where he was going to get asked to join the Avengers, the Avengers eventually. <laughs> yeah, at the end of uh her first novel which was published under Gordon, I think it was called The Man in the Queue. Uh 
yes, at the end, Samuel L. Jackson shows up and asks <laughs> Alan Grant if he would like to join the Avengers. That's definitely what happens. Um, she, We don't know anything about her, if she was married or raised a family. She seemed pretty independent, um, though apparently one of one of the letters between her and her publisher implies that she might have lost someone in World War One. Um but other than that, there's no record of, of other relations. I thought that um, was kind of refreshing in this book, yeah. The Daughter of Time, was that there was no there wasn't really any romance, which I th- always think is kind of refreshing. Well, and that can kind of muddy a mystery plot. Yeah. You know, if you're if the main character is worried about the mysteries of the human heart and not the mysteries <laughs> of the crime scene, you know. Because you get into those mysteries where where the person is only solving the mystery because a, a dame with uh, with <laughs> with gams came into his office and <laughs> or like in this I read a Dashiell Hammett novel recently where the detective just like sleeps with the victim like in the middle <laughs> no like, in the middle of the investigation. <laughs> is it like is it a perverse part of the investigation? Is he like gathering information or? It's just like he was overcome by the moment. <laughs> sure. All right. <laughs> Some sort of James Bond scenario. Yes, exactly. Before before they invented conflicts of interest, I guess. <laughs> I thought it was cool that uh, Tay would go to the Inverness cops to get advice on uh, ha- police procedure and stuff like that. I, I remember, Andrew, do you remember when we did that? book by tana french in the woods into the woods not yes. into the woods in the woods in, into the woods is something else <laughs> but go ahead uh but she uh name dropped the the cops like the police force from the area where she was setting the novel um which i always think that's interesting because it's are you really adhering to fact or are you being fanciful like you want to create a realistic approach to some of these things I don't know if you've seen that in other novels that you've read, Lauren. I don't I don't know. I don't even know. I feel like the crime novels I read are so old that I don't even think of them as correlating oh, to like yeah. real life police officers or anything uh-huh. like that. Um, sure. But I'm sure and I know that when we when we've looked for story ideas, there's we we talked to this one guy who has sort of made a profession. He's like a former cop and now he just consults with crime writers. So I know, huh. and he has like written a whole compendium of like, <laughs> it's like oh, wow. it's like ways to die by fish attack, like ways to <laughs> die by like stepping on metal. It's like all, it's like every scenario that you could possibly, like every every murder scenario is like cataloged and indexed. So we thought like, oh, we should interview him, but then there's like kind of what I just told you is kind of all there is to it. Like, yeah, there wasn't yeah, like a he- ton more <laughs> to say to say. But, you um, could just record him for 20 minutes reading yeah. excerpts from his book. That would kind of defeat the purpose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's dive into the book. What is... This was... Andrew, you and I were talking before we started recording. This was her... We think her last book before she passed in 52. the last book published while she was still alive. Okay. Um, she had two published posthumously, I believe. Um, and, and maybe some short plays. I don't know. Um but what is what is the daughter of time? What are we up to here? What is this book about? So I was super surprised. I, I mean, as soon as I got to the like page, the first page of the book is like a, one of those like trees of like really. Oh, on mine here, I'll sh- what? nobody else will be able to see. But yeah, as soon us. as I yeah. saw this, 
<laughs> I was like, uh oh. So it's one of the, it's uh-oh. like a a map of different. I don't know what you call it, like British families, like um, English monarchs, or yeah, whatever. yeah. And it's and right. I mean, it looks like a Tolkien appendix. Like I don't know what I'm getting into. <laughs> right. Here. And I was like, oh, I see. This is not going to be the kind of book I thought it was. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it does star Alan Grant, right? Who's a fictional detective who is at the beginning of the book we we meet him and he's he's in a hospital and he's driving himself crazy staring at the cracks on the ceiling so you learn that he's super bored and um and he talks about the nurses and and we can tell that he's losing his mind because uh, he has nothing to do okay I think he's broken his leg by falling through a trap door <laughs> like which, you do yeah okay. I thought that that was one of the one of the few sort of comic moments in this novel. <laughs> Was, was when he complains about how, what like a cliche it is for a detective to like fall through a trap door. I thought that that was, I thought that was nice. Um, but then his sort of famous actress friend comes and brings him a bunch of photographs, or I guess a bunch of paintings of faces because apparently he likes to study faces. Sure. Right, and among them yeah. is a painting of Richard the Third. And he's struck by this painting because he doesn't recognize it as Richard III uh, because he thinks the face is like serene and seems, mm. what does he say? Like it seems like a judge. It seems gentle. Huh. So, think mm. Things al- along these lines. You guys are looking at me like, no. I'm just not, I'm not sure what he could infer from the face that a painting was making, <laughs> but I'm sure it will all make sense in time. That's what he says. So then he asks the other nurses and he asks everyone who comes into the in to visit him in his room, he says, like, what do you make of this guy's face? And they all have it they all basically have a read of the face that is sort of the opposite of like evil, mega like a megalomaniac, like murderer. Um which is the prevailing opinion of Richard the Third ever since Shakespeare put pen to paper. Yes, right, right, right. So he gets he gets pretty interested in this because I th- I guess because he thinks he's such a good read of faces that he's like, well, something must be amiss here because this murderer couldn't have a face like this. Um, what? How does it? How does he know that it's an accurate painting? I suppose. I guess he has nothing to go on other than just here's a painting of Richard the Third. It could be as inaccurate as Shakespeare, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I don't know. And I, w- I w- that was one thing I thought he- that he was going to do was try to learn more about the painter. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But that, that would have been a way to go. That didn't really happen. Um, <laughs> so, so the sh- the short summary is that like from his bed, he never okay. leaves his bed. From his bed, he's able to he enlists the help of a young American who's followed this other actress to England that he's in love with her name's Atlanta and so he's bored so he enlists this young American who's bored to help him do research and so he gets all these documents from the British Museum and brings them to Alan Grant in the hospital and slowly uh, they begin to like chip away at this idea that Richard III was a murderer and then the question becomes okay well then who killed the princes in the tower um and something that I think is set up really nicely is the way that Alan Grant like asks all the nurses and he asks everyone like, do you know the story of the princes in the tower? And everyone knows it. So it's established for, <laughs> it helped me as a contemporary reader who doesn't really know that story to, that really helped me sort of understand like, okay, this was like a prevailing narrative of something that happened. Um, can, can you walk us through it for reference? Cause I was like doing a little bit of my research. <laughs> <Your> sh- <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> 
Not really. Uh, so these two young boys were last seen in the Tower of London before the Tower of London was like a jail, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then the story was that they were suffocated with a pillow and then buried at the bottom of a staircase. Sure. And then their yes. remains were never found. Okay. Is that is that what you guys I, got? I think so. I yeah, think right. that's... <laughs> And this is this is during what what is the year here? This is like the turn of the 16th century, like late 1400s, I think is the era. I really hope I'm right. The thought was that yeah, it was- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, his reign was 1483 to 1485, so we're looking at a pretty narrow window of time okay. here. Great. Yeah. Okay. So everyone in this this hospital somewhere in London just knows. The story? I'll know the broad strokes of the story. And then he gets one of the nurses. I think he calls her the Amazon. So he calls okay. the nurses the Amazon. He calls the tall nurse the Amazon. And he calls the short nurse the midget. Um, oh. All right. <laughs> Nothing problematic about any of that. That seems good. And then he uh, asks. Apparently, the Amazon loved school and has saved all of her books for when she was a little girl. So he asks her to bring him a book from... Uh, from her like a children's history book, so she does. So that's where he starts is with that version of events. Um, so there are children's history books about that time a king took two boys into a tower and killed them with pillows. Yes. <laughs> huh. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> I know what I am buying my friends who have kids. That's exactly what I'm going to. I've got to say, I'm getting like a very Da Vinci Code vibe from this so far. Like. I've noticed something about this painting that nobody has ever noticed before, and I'm going to use it to solve a centuries-old mystery. I think that that's sort of exactly that's exactly right. I think. Um, okay. I so so he gets this like young American to bring him like different layers of documents. So then he's like, okay, well the seminal like the authoritative text on on Richard the Third will be this Sir Thomas More history. Um, oh yeah, mm-hmm. and so he reads to Sir Thomas More, and and Sir Thomas More also says that Richard the Third killed the two princes, and so then for a moment it seems like a slam dunk, and then I think there are several times in the book when Alan Grant like wakes himself up with a discovery, like like, like from <laughs> like, <laughs> like he's sleeping, and then he like opens his eyes and has he's like discovered something really important in his sleep. Um, so I take it it's not first person then. It is it is a close third. Yeah, very close third. It, yes. It is not. Mm-hmm. I woke myself up with an amazing idea. With a start. <laughs> That's right. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then he realizes that Sir Thomas More would have been five years old when Richard III was king. So there's no way that Sir Thomas More's version was primary or could be, could have been firsthand. Um, okay. And so then oh, he he like slowly realizes that that's even though that he thought that that would have been like the authoritative history that can't be right. Uh, and so and meanwhile, like the the pretty actress is like blowing through, and then like there are some other characters who sort of come in, and I think they're supposed to like break up the the historical monotony. Which is like, which is pretty thick. Like, it's not even that long of a book, but it's pretty historical. Um, and then, and then slowly, he and his assistant, real this like young American, realize that okay, not only was it not Richard the Third, Richard the Third was like just a totally stand up guy, and also his his like right to the 
throne was like never in jeopardy so he actually had no motive whatsoever to kill these young boys like these two young boys pose no threat to his sort of ascendancy um but they did pose a threat to henry the seventh okay and so they slowly through like reading many many books and finding many many primary documents discover that it had to have been henry the seventh who killed the nephews um and then there were like there was like this character who like confessed but confessed falsely and confessed like maybe he confessed to something under duress and was uh killed and then only like 40 years later the, the crime of the this crime was pinned on him like there were like some some sort of like historical red herrings that like Alan Grant realizes from his bed like also don't pan <laughs> out um and then and is he planning is he planning to go public with this information or is he just this is just for him and his own pleasures in a hospital bed? Well that's the other thing is the more the closer he gets, like the healthier he becomes. So like he's like he's like becoming stronger and healthier. Uh the more he learns. Like a good mystery. Yeah. But but near the end of the book, the the young American is like, I'm going to write a book about this. And Alan Grant is like thrilled and is like, absolutely, you okay. should. And then the American's like, no, you should write the book. And he's like, I have no desire to write a book ever. I think there are too many books. No, thank you. Um, <laughs> and then the American's like, well, don't you think I should write this book? And he's like, no, definitely. Like, this book has to be written because um, people need to know this. Um, and so... But then at the very end of the book, I, I'm like, I'm like, there's like 10 pages left. And I'm like, because I had read a bunch of stuff that said, like, this is an unrepeatable masterpiece. So when, when I heard unrepeatable, <laughs> when I when I heard unrepeatable, I thought there was going to be like a crazy twist that made it unrepeatable. Right. Like no one could pull this move after she did. So as we ne- like I'm 10 pages to the end and I'm still waiting for like something crazy to happen. <laughs> like he is Richard the 3rd or like I don't know what I'm waiting for. <laughs> like, wait, waiting for something crazy. And then what happens is the American comes in and he's depressed and he's like we are right, but also people have known this already for 400 years. And like there have been treatises written like in defense of Richard the third. So even though it wasn't like at the level of popular comprehension that Richard the third probably didn't do this. And Richard the third was, has gone down in history as like a bad guy. Um, Alan Grant and his American apprentice, like did not solve this mystery. Like this mystery has been out there for a long time. So I thought that would like really pulled the rug out from under. <laughs> like, That's a bummer. Right? That's a super bummer. <laughs> But then Alan Grant, the American's like, now I'm so depressed, like, forget it. And then Alan Grant is like, no, you must still write the book because like water over a pebble, like the more (laughs) like the power of time, um, maybe maybe will help people understand, Um, which when I put the book down, I took to be kind of a metaphor for what Josephine Tay was trying to do. Right. Because I think. The reason that this book was popular was because when it came out, a lot of people hadn't read the treatises that came out shortly after, right? So she did sort of manage to bring this to a popular imagination. Um, But as a mystery novel or a crime novel, (laughs) I am not sure that this was what I was expecting. So, yeah, like, what do we, do we learn about Alan Grant? Like, do we learn, do we get a sense of who he is, given the fact that he's, in the course of this book, just a guy sitting in a bed reading books? 
No, we we don't learn really anything about him. We learn that he likes to have the painting right by him, really close to him. And if it falls or if someone moves it, he wants it back right by him. So he loves he loves paintings. That's the one character beat that we have. That was that was I was gonna I was gonna ask like it it seems like there's not really a very thick barrier between like the the protagonist of this book and the author of this book. Yeah. Like I mean, it seems right. how 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 much is Josephine Tay just trying to decipher this whole Richard the Third mystery herself, and then just putting Alan Crant like in between them to make it seem like a fiction? I book. think I like ninety eight percent of that. Like it really does <laughs> okay. seem like that because like the pleasure that I, I, like what I felt as a reader was that the pleasure that she was taking in writing it, like she was, I think, deriving great pleasure from. Um, unveil, unveiling each new detail that undermined this idea that Richard III was a murderer. Um, so I think you can like detect her pleasure, and you can certainly detect Alan Grant's pleasure. Um, and and I was trying to imagine like the pleasure of a contemporary reader, like back then, or even like a British reader. Like I don't know. I think for me, I just don't didn't feel like I had like the the grasp of history to like take as much pleasure in this as I can imagine others did. Yeah, totally. You needed more preconceived notions about Richard the third. Yeah, absolutely. To fully enjoy it. Yeah. Or, or maybe a stronger need to engage with those notions. You know, like I think we have, we have like a, here in America have like a, an E entertainment news fascination with the British Royals, right? Like that they get married. We pay attention the queen has cute dogs. We pay attention. They wear weird hats. They we wear weird attention. hats. We pay attention. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then, like, somebody does a Shakespeare history, and everyone gets a little confused. And then, all and from own experience, I watch people use like Game of Thrones language to drum up interest. And especially <laughs> in the histories, because it's like, oh, those shifting alliances, and you know, who knows what's going to happen. But this is a true story. It's not really a true story. It's Shakespeare's story. And that's what we know. So to, to kind of wade into this with the gripping thriller tag on top of it seems like a tall order. Right. And that just may have been my fault. Like, I was, like, just pumped. I was <laughs> oh. like, this is, I mean, I was like, this is, like, a really famous mystery novel. And it's written by a woman. And I've never heard of it. And this is top mm -hmm. of my list. Um, so I was, <laughs> I did not know what I was getting into. Because <laughs> um, the other thing to keep in mind is, like, because he's in a hospital most of the book is just dialogue between he and the young American. So it's just dialogue about historical documents. Um, is it a lot of like the American comes in and then he just says, here's what I learned today. Here's yes. what I read. Yes. Oh boy. It's like, like Alan Grant, they'll like make some chit chat and then Alan Grant will be like, what have you got for me today? And then the American will be like, where, where should I start? And like, they're really excited. Um, <laughs> But I'm just sort of like, where on the page is like the relevant kernel going to jump out for me here? Um, <laughs> well, and what is that? What is that stake if he doesn't solve the mystery? That's what I thought was kind of a bummer was like your question, like, what was he going to do with this information? Was he going to go public? Yeah. It does just seem like he was entertaining himself um, because he's such like, I guess he's such like a crack detective that he couldn't help it. Um, almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but not not it's a not ton is I mean although I, I should say like I think that one thing I read after I finished the book was that this I was reading like all these people were like I've read this book three four times and I was just like why like but <laughs> but, but one thing, thing that I read was that one lady was like the first time I read this book um was when I was in high school in a high school history class and then that made sense to me because okay so much okay. of it I think so much of it like does 
point to this idea that like just because you read it in a history book doesn't mean that it's objective right that like all the history is just a series of narratives and like you should always ask like who's benefiting from telling the story in this way um and what have you encountered that have you encountered that those types of scenarios even in your work on criminal like people who are up against history in a way or or their either their own history or just kind of a different version of events right because i it sounds like she's trying to take a take a real strong swipe at injustice and the injustice of a story going against someone and them not being able to stop it. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's a I I like teaching high school students that like there's no there's no such thing as like capital H history, right? You have like Yeah, yeah. hundreds of competing narratives and you should always consider like who's telling the story, but I think for right. a really contemporary reader it might be less gripping. But yeah, like we did a story with a guy who had committed a really violent murder in the 70s and then he was in prison and he was he seems like he was a really like a real violent guy in prison um and then he got out and he continued to be violent and um so his family sort of came to see him as this guy who like you know you would call and he would take care of stuff for you using violence i think and and then he decided he didn't want to be that guy anymore and i think that that's caused a lot of trouble for him with his family just because that's the story that's always been the story that was the story as he told it to us Mm -hmm. um and now he's trying to change that story and like nobody believes him and his family's mad at him and they're like he told us that it's they just make fun of him um so i i don't know i think that's interesting you know like yeah, that that's rough because my my uh, my wife works with um with drug addicts and that kind of serial lying thing is a big like is a big problem with them like everybody always says, you know, I'm going to turn this I'm going to turn myself around now like this is the time I'm going to I'm going to get clean and I'm going to fix my life. And for, you know, for a lot of people out there there was one time when they said that and and they then they did it, but for other people they said it and then it, it didn't mean anything. So right. how do you, how do you like screen that noise out? Like how do you tell when they mean it and when they're just saying it to like get what they want or whatever? I don't know. It seems really hard. And I think fortunately for us, like we don't, we don't have to, you know, like we, we can yeah. just like mm-hmm. hear them. Um, but we did a story with like a, a, a young African-American guy who was shot by a white police officer in his front yard. And, um, you know his family's version of events he survived so he can tell his own story and he and his family tell one story and then the officers tell a really different story um and there's no video so yeah yeah you know that there's like two narratives that compete and you have to um you know there wouldn't be a way there's not just one way to tell that story so i think that that's the sort of like message that she's drilling drilling through this book you know is sort of like Mm -hmm. you should question all sources you should question all academics you know you should um you know, there's like lots of jokes near the end of the book. Like I'm never believing anything in a book ever again, that sort of thing. Like, um, (laughs) right. Like you should be really skeptical of who's telling you the story and what, what's their angle basically. Um, so that's, I thought that was kind of cool, but it did, it, that may on the whole, it did feel more like a book that you would want to read in high school or how, or like maybe as a high school teacher, or even like I, I've been teaching first year college students forever and like that would be a great book to teach them just to sort of introduce this idea that, um, you know, when you're reading any doc, any source, you know, the writer is coming from a point of view. Right. And you have to be aware of that. Yeah. But for like a pleasure, it's certainly not a beach read, I wouldn't say. <laughs> and it's not like I think I really go come go to mystery novels and go to crime novels so that I can like read them in one sitting and just like disappear 
from my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was not happening. Definitely, <laughs> definitely had my phone in my hand for most of this one. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like you as a reader need to have like a level of inexperience with stories like this for, 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 I, I guess you're ta- you're talking about twists where he's like the first person to ever do math and realize <laughs> realize that this person who's telling the story is five years old and couldn't possibly be like remembering it correctly. Like right. that's that's that, it's hard to suspend your disbelief in in that in that kind of scenario. And so when you're talking about younger readers, yeah, they're not going to have run into that. They're not going to have thought of that. But when you're talking about reading that, you know, after you've read a bunch of other true crime stories, it sounds like a pretty sounds like a pretty thin excuse for for misinterpreting the facts. Yeah, yeah. I guess. And maybe like yeah. it's more it's more of like an educational text in that sense. Like you do your own critical thinking with everything that you mm-hmm. pick up. Um mm-hmm. But there aren't also there's not that much humor in the book and I was thinking that that is there's actually like a lot of dry humor in a lot of crime novels Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially the old ones which are the ones i read mostly and i really missed that in this one a lot um yeah i'd be interested to know if that's her voice like i'd be interested to read more of her work to see if that's part of her voice or if that's the function of her famous detective pouring over historical texts you know like is that just because the book is mostly a book report told by him from a hospital bed or is it just how she tackled mysteries i don't don't know i'm gonna read another one i want to give it give her one more chance because i don't think I i can't imagine that all of her books are like this although i did learn from her wikipedia that this theme of like history being more than one narrative i know that this was a preoccupation for her like throughout her entire all of her work but mm-hmm. i think that i'd like i'd like to read i'd like to try one more because this one feels unique yeah she'd written a play about richard the second which seemed to kind of which gilgood was in and seemed to remix that a little bit from from the story we know from shakespeare and i think she wrote another play i don't remember what it's called right now that introduced this idea that Richard III did not uh, commit these crimes. So I wonder if uh, I see a sa- the same thread in that that goes all the way back to Shakespeare where you take a historical figure, and we do this today now, and it becomes part of the conversation around every story about every movie or whatever about a historical figure. Like, is this true to the books? Is this true to the history texts? Yeah. Well, are those texts true? This is, you know, this is historical license. This is poetic license, whatever you want to call it. Um, you're trying to tell a good story. This book seems to be out to do other things, I guess. seems to be out to tell the truest story possible, I suppose. Um, or to, yeah, like, that... threaten our idea of a true story, maybe. That's true. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Uh, there seems to be this tradition, certainly in in English literature, and I'm sure in plenty of others, actually, um, certainly not exclusive to that, of being comfortable messing with history, or at least trying to find the next version of that history as you're as you're telling your own story. Um, I wonder what it is that drove her to that particular axe to grind. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm also very curious why the book is so why people love it so much. Like I feel like. I feel like I like almost everything I read. Like it's very rare for me to have a lukewarm reaction. I feel like if I if I cared enough to find it and pick it up in the first place, like I'm gonna 
enjoy myself. And I felt like what this was this was the first book in a long time where I've been like, I kind of don't get the fascination. Yeah, yeah. Like usually when I'm reading something, even if I don't like it, like the fact that I the fact that I don't like it and the fact that I'm gonna have to come on this podcast and articulate why I don't like it makes me like understand it better. So like even even if I person if if it's not my thing, like personally, I understand why people like it. But this just just from what you're saying, it all it all seems a little like surface level. And then the book, like at the end, comes to the conclusion that this mystery has been solved already. So why did we spend all this time <laughs> investigating it in the first place? Like it, it it just feels it feels surprisingly like inessential, I guess, for a book that's that's gotten so many accolades. Yeah, yeah, totally. There was a, I had a I took a class in grad school with Heidi Julevitz, and she would always say that she thought that. Um, frustration was like the most fruitful response you could possibly have to any book. Um, and I, I think about that all the time and I really love that idea, but I didn't, I wasn't even frustrated with this one. Like it, it was pretty, it was a pretty muted experience. Like, okay. Yeah. He's gonna, yeah. he's gonna get to the end of it. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe it, maybe it was just a thing of it's, it's time because, you know, as I was, as I was researching, I ran into this, this thing where Winston Churchill had said, that he believed that Richard III was responsible for the murder of these princes. And I don't know, like maybe, maybe the establishment at the time was still pushing this line. And then, and that's what elevated this book yeah. to the level that it was elevated to is because it was going like, it was running counter to that narrative. But I, you know, I have well, no idea. So the, so the Richard III society, Andrew, <laughs> there's a whole society. It's, it is on both sides of the pond. There is a, there's a UK chapter, which is the primary chapter, and there's an American chapter. What do they do and how often do they meet? Those are the questions I have. I don't know how often they hold meetings, but they okay. aim to promote, In I'm quoting from their website, in every possible way, research into the life and times of Richard III and to secure a reassessment of the material relating to this period and of the role of this monarch in English history. Um, and they derive, you know, the the actual du- Duke of Gloucester right now, um, they their purpose derives from the belief that the truth is more powerful than lies, um, a faith a faith that even <laughs> after all idea. these centuries, <laughs> I know, <laughs> uh, a faith that even after all these centuries, the truth is important. So this society actually credits this book with uh, a large like explosion in their in in their uh work. Uh, I think huh. they they were founded in 1924 by a surgeon and his friends, uh <laughs> Saxon Barton. <laughs> um but then when this book came out in the 1950s, there was a flurry of interest apparently, probably because it was she had had, you know, four or five successful novels beforehand and people knew who she was and were interested in her writing. Uh, and then uh, there's a Laurence Olivier film of Richard III that comes out around that time, and then another biography comes out uh, around that time. So there's this big interest in it. And what I can't tell you is like why, what was maybe going on in British politics that made Richard III feel particularly relevant at that time. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I I saw uh, the Winston Churchill thing too, and I saw that it he said that like five or six years after this book came out. So like I can imagine that her book was really controversial and that may 
have been part of why it was such a sensation. Um, I, sure. I wonder if like coming out of World War Two, maybe where it was easy to say who the villains were to then take a stance on history that really defends or at least calls into question all our our condemnation of a of a historical villain i don't know i'm grasping at straws here but yeah no i mean world war ii is is really interesting in in our lifetimes at least as is because compared to so many other things like like all the wars in the middle east and in vietnam like it, it seems uniquely black and white but then also we destroyed like a lot of buildings and art and history and stuff and our, and our quest to like win that conflict. I don't know. It's, it's, it feels like we're still grasping. We're still grappling with those same questions as like, what is, (laughs) what is history? (laughs) Well, and (laughs) and, I mean, well, since we're on world war two, I was just reading articles the other day about the 70th anniversaries of the bombs dropped in Japan. And, the work that people in Japan are doing to carry those stories forward. And they're not just having survivors or, you know, folks who were alive at that time talk into a microphone and have it recorded. They're actually speaking with people who are working to memorize those people's stories. Almost like the the folks at the end of Fahrenheit 451 who are like memorizing books so that they're not lost to time. Um, Wow. And it's really interesting the fact that you are passing on a story through another person. And again, it calls into question, like, where do these, where does the truth of these stories live if there is an objective truth? And Tay seems to be arguing that there might not be, or at least less objective truth than you think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The question that keeps re- reappearing is um, who benefits? And I thought that was... I, so I think she just always wants oh, us yeah. to be asking that, like, right, like who, what, what am I reading and who benefits from this telling of events? And that, that really, I, I really was excited about that because that was when I would teach my students, like things that were just even like the babiest bit Marxist, like Barbara Ehrenreich or like <laughs> we would read some Terry Eagleton and, and I would try to explain like all that you have to consider here is like who benefits from this version of events. Like if we believe, mm. if we believe that like all the greatest writers all the greatest fiction writers like just so happened to be like white men, white British men, right? Like what are we excluding and like who benefits from that story, you know, or like who benefits from, you know, that sort of thing. So anyway, that's like, it was just, I've, I've ended up, I've spent like a lot of my life as a teacher, like asking my students to think about that question. Um, and so I was, I was kind of tickled to see it uh, just asked again. And I, I think I saw it twice in this book, but I was happy both times. Uh, what we know about Richard III now he was the last monarch to die in battle I did not know that before researching for this show so that's part of our fascination with him I think Um, did you guys know his bones were discovered underneath a parking lot in 2012 I did know I read that today in the New Yorker Uh, they used some sort of radar to they basically they found the church where they thought he was buried did some radar scans underneath a couple parking lots in Leicester and found the right architecture that they thought fit the medieval church. Huh. Uh, and then they raised a bunch, the society of Richard III raised a bunch of money to dig him up uh, and then inter him in the Leicester Cathedral. In That Jeez. just happened this past March, actually. That makes me hope like two things is one. I hope people in the future 
care enough to find my bones. <laughs> and two, I hope that technology advances enough that they can find my bones no matter where they end up. <laughs> they put like <laughs> chips in your bones so yeah. they can find that the burial foot bone chips. <laughs> I just think it's they had to do like mitochondrial DNA analysis of these bones and compare them to like other dead relatives and then like one or two very distant living relatives just to see if it was actually him and people are still not sure which i think is fascinating the, hmm. i read a slightly different version of that same story in the new yorker it was it was just from march um and it's about it says that there's a writer named Philippa Langley, and she was researching a screenplay about Richard III. And according to her, she was walking through an empty parking lot, and she felt a chill, and she just knew. And then she, <laughs> and then she persuaded this group, this University of Leicester team, and the group of Ricardians to uh, to to fund this. And they dug it up, and they did find a skeleton with battle wounds uh, near that spot. And they concluded it was Richard the Third. This is what this is what the New Yorker piece says. Wow. Huh. All right. That's yeah, really interesting. Did... But it, it's that foundation's a little shaky. To build <laughs> that whole that whole thing on, isn't it? I, I walked through a parking lot and I heard the words. Now is the winter of our discontent, and I just knew. I just knew that he was there. <laughs> That's funny. I haven't watched any. Um, House of Cards, because apparently he's a huge influence, or at least Shakespeare's version is a huge influence on that show. Do we like that show, Andrew? You've got you got a TV podcast. Do we I, like that show? I find it I find it super tedious. But Lauren, I don't know. Do you have any? Have you watched House of Cards? Do you have an opinion on? I the show? I had I had read comparisons to Macbeth, but I can see Richard the Third also. I think the show is fine. I definitely when the new season comes, I watch it quick. I'm happy to watch it. It's very, very dramatic. Um, yeah, yeah, that's mm. true. <laughs> well, my, I mean, my wife and I, we watched the first two seasons and it was, it was fine. Like you read the stories about how it, it's, it's, gen, it's, it's a drama that's put together using all of Netflix's data about like prestige dramas and who watches them and why they watch them. And so it comes off as being a little like, procedurally generated i guess is like a it's it's what would happen if you put together a prestige drama with a computer and <laughs> i just I've, i personally i feel like that comes through too much like what about that show that doesn't have as much of a heart with meacham when they have the threesome <laughs> that's true there is <laughs> i feel like that could have come out of an algorithm i don't think depending so. on <laughs> that was really I wild think that, like like the West Wing would have would have benefited from a scene where the president and the first lady and a Secret Service agent all like went down on each just other. To, just mix it up. Yeah. Uh, just to put Richard the Third to bed, I suppose. So um, he is since the publication of this novel, he's actually been retried several times. Uh, they did like a whole trial, a public one in Great Britain in '84. And former Chief Justice William Rehnquist actually acquitted him twice of the murder in the towers. What? Yeah, they it was at like the Indiana School of Law at the University of Indiana. And which I gotta is like, say, I feel I feel like that's outside of our jurisdiction. Wait, I don't. Know. You mean as like a law school exercise? I I guess so. They it wasn't all law students. There were some folks who had already uh, become lawyers participating. <laughs> but to your point earlier about this book perhaps being a really good read in the context of 
a class or yeah. in the context of studying this type of work you know if you're going if you are a historian and you're you know just really diving into the concept of historiography which is not anything you think about in high school usually right. you just learn the test really um this is what my civics book said this is what my book said <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what i wrote on all of my tests i wrote this is what my book said um yeah you don't really think about that when you're just trying to pass exams and get into college but then when you dive a bit deeper this would be something or an exercise like that would be an, would be an interesting way to unpack kind of that middle ground between the truth and hmm. someone else's truth the winner's truth or whatever you want to call it yeah you know. yeah definitely Richard the third is just the law school Kobayashi Maru test. <laughs> uh, well, Lauren, thanks for coming on the show. I think we're just about out of time. This was really fun. All right, cool. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. And I'm really, I'm happy in spite of, in spite of everything I said, I'm happy that I read it. Uh huh. And now, you know, uh, now I know, and I will, right? I will try <laughs> another one of hers. Great. She seems like a, she seems like a cool lady. I want. She seems like she deserves some fair shakes. That's how. That's what I think too. I'm gonna give her one more shake. Great. <laughs> Two shakes. <laughs> uh, real quick, we can we can you can find us if you like this show at overdue pod at twitter dot com and facebook dot com slash twitter overdue pod. I messed that Man, up. Man, that was really good. I don't know You're what happened. URLs. <laughs> uh, you could also write us emails at overduepod at gmail.com. We've got a live show at the end of August through the Philly Podfest. Go to phillypodfest.com for more information. Andrew, what's on our website? Um, our website, overduepodcast.com, which actually is the correct URL, uh -huh. <laughs> where you can find links to iTunes and RSS, all the stuff you can use to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, leave us a rating or review because it helps us rise in the rankings. It helps people find the show. Um, Lauren, you guys have a live tour, I think, coming up and, and some other things. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're going to we're going to the West Coast. So we live in Durham, North Carolina, and we are we're going to do live shows in Seattle, San Francisco and L.A. Uh, in early November. And then we're going to start that off by doing a show here in our hometown at Motorco in Durham. Um, awesome. Yeah. Is it going to be a different show at every stop, or are you guys going to kind of do the same thing it's every show? A little every bit TBD go? so far. Okay. I mean, there will we have a live show coming up, so I understand. This. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And where can people go if they want to find out more about the show? Our website criminal. is um, it's thisiscriminal.com. Um, and we're on Twitter at criminal show. Great. And then you are at Lauren, Lauren Sporer. Sporer, yeah. It's, it's tough to spell. S-P-O-H-R-E-R. Uh, <laughs> thank you. There thank you. you. Uh, this was really fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. It was really fun. Yeah. All right, everybody. We, we will be back. We will be back next Monday. And until then, everyone, try to be happy. <laughs> <laughs>